When members of our church disagree, how should we help to resolve the conflict? Well, that's one of the many questions that will be answered today as we continue our five-year journey through God's whole word. I'm Steve Schwetz, welcoming you to Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. And the Bible bus is departing for Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 in just a minute. So grab your copy of God's Word, find your place, and while you do that, here's a quick note from a fellow passenger named Gail, who listens from her home in San Francisco. I happened on the Bible bus in the middle of the 1970s. Initially, it was a bumpy ride until I decided God's Word might actually have something to say. These many decades later, I still listen and learn. The Holy Spirit opens my ears to hear what I hadn't paid notice to before. I find it amazing that I see the good news afresh every time I open the Bible. I'm so surprised that, like Dr. McGee, the more I study, the more I find that every book in the Word is my favorite. It's given me such pleasure to witness Dr. McGee's love for the Scriptures. I actually can hear it in his voice, and it makes me smile. Thank you for keeping the old Bible bus running. May God continue to bless this ministry. Well, thanks for your email, Gail, and I agree. After all these years, I learned something new with each study. Now, what's your story? Are you learning something new as we travel through Ephesians? Why don't you write and tell us what our time in God's Word means to you? Email us at BibleBus at ttb.org. You can always post a message on our Facebook page, or you can write to Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. Or call and leave a message at 1-800-65-BIBLE. Let's pray for one another now. Heavenly Father, thank you for the depths and riches that are found only in your word. The more we study it, Lord, the more we see. And thank you, Lord, for your spirit, our teacher, who will reveal new truth to us today. Help us to listen, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we're off to Ephesians 4 on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Now, friends, we're seeing the church walking through the world. We're seeing the believer, the individual believer, as he's walking through the world today. And last time we left off and dealt with it rather hurriedly at verse 22 through 24, where Paul says that you put off as regards your former manner of life, the old man, and that you're to put on, he says here, the new man. Now, it's actually like a garment. You put off the old, put on the new. And don't we call certain garments a habit? There's a riding habit, a walking habit. There is one for hiking, hunting habit, and playing golf, a habit for that, so that we have different habits. Now, the child of God is to put on as a garment, the new man. Actually, what this means here that it cannot be done by self-effort. After all, the babe in Christ can't dress himself. I found out that a child has to get very far along before he's able to dress himself. And when he starts out, he doesn't do very well. We never reach the place where we can do that. Now, the old man, we're told over in Romans, has been crucified in the death of Christ. And in view of this truth, then they were to put off in the power of the Holy Spirit the old man. This does not mean, friends, that they eliminate the flesh. We do not get rid of the old nature, but we're not to live in it. And I think any person today listening to me who's honest, you recognize you've got an old nature. Now, we're not to live in it, but we also have a new nature. We are to live in it, and only by the power of the Holy Spirit as that's the great message of the 7th and 8th of Romans, 
And Paul is dealing with that here. And that we are to walk in the righteousness and holiness of the truth. That shows that this is the imputed righteousness of Christ, and this is all done consistent with the holy character of God. Since we've been declared righteous, and we're in Christ, seated up there, down here, our walk should be commensurate with our position. Now, verse 25 through 27, Wherefore, having put away lying, speak ye truth, every one with his neighbor. For ye are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your indignation or your irritation. No longer give room to the devil. Now, Paul here returns to the prohibitions. He began in verse 17, where the believers told to walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Now, these injunctions continue through the remainder now of this epistle. These are the prohibitions. This is the power of negative thinking. Now, he's to speak the truth. And he's speaking the truth. Why? Because he's to put away lying. And when the old man was put off in the crucifixion of Christ, the lying tongue and the deceitful heart were put on the cross. That's the reason he had to die for us, is because you and I are lies. Remember, David said, I said in my haste, all men are liars. I remember hearing old Dr. W.I. Carroll years ago say, he said, you know, David said, all men are liars. But he said it in his haste. And Dr. Carroll says, you know, I've had a long time to think it over. And I still agree with David. Well, speaking the truth, you see, I think it resolved most of the problems in the average church. Long ago, I gave up the idea of trying to straighten out all of the lies that I'd hear in the church. I started out, I'd follow it down. And I found out, friends, you spend all your time doing that. Now, since believers are member of one body, they should speak the truth. Here's the thing that Chrysostom said, and it's a ridiculous analogy, but it certainly illustrates the truth. I'm reading now from Chrysostom. Let not the eye lie to the foot, nor the foot to the eye. If there be a deep pit, and its mouth covered with reeds, shall present to the eye the appearance of solid ground. Will not the eye use the foot to ascertain whether it's hollow underneath, or whether it is firm and resists? Will the foot tell a lie, and not the truth as it is? And what again? If the eye were to spy a serpent or a wild beast, will it lie to the foot? I know, my friend, like the fellow that said he saw a ghost at night. Well, the eye told him he saw something, and he said to his feet, feet, don't get in my way. <laughs> I'm ready to go. And so he started out. Feet didn't let him down, you see, because they don't deceive one another. The eye won't deceive the foot. And in the church, there ought to be honesty and truth. And he says, be angry and sin not. Now, the believers commanded to be angry with certain conditions and with certain people. You know, this idea today that a Christian is one who's a blah, that he's sweet under all circumstances and conditions. My friend, will you hear me carefully? No believer 
can be neutral in the battle of truth. We should hate the lying and the gossiping tongue. And when we hear that in another Christian, we should hate that thing. Now, we should not hate or loathe a person with an innate hatred or, as Peter calls it, malice. He says that malice is something that should not be in the life of the believer. Laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, he says, and as newborn babes, we should desire the sincere milk of the word. Malice, as someone has said, is congealed anger. Can't give it up. A great many people have certain hang-ups. They hate certain people. They can't get over it, they say. I can't forgive. Well, we should forgive and forget if the person is willing to give up their lying. And you find that the Word of God has a great deal to say about this. This idea that we're to be sort of a milk toast individual. You remember the Lord Jesus, when he went into that temple, and there was that man with the withered hand, and they had planted him there to see what he would do. Remember what Mark says in Mark 3, 5? And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he hated that thing. And he was angry with that thing. My friend, we're told that God is angry all day long with the wicked, but the minute they'll give it up, turn to him, he'll save them, of course. Now, that should be our attitude, by the way, the attitude of a believer. I heard of a custodian in a church. It was a church that had had a lot of problems, a lot of trouble, a lot of bitterness and hatred in the church, and a lot of little cliques, a lot of little groups. And they'd had one pastor after another. The custodian, though, had been there for years. And someone one day visited the church who knew about the church said, how is it that you've been able to stay here so long under the circumstances? Well, he says, you know, I just gets into neutral and lets them push me around. My friend, a great many people think that's being the Christian, to do that. No Christian can be neutral. We're in a great battle, as we're going to see in this epistle here. Now, verse 28 and 29, "...let the stealer steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his own hands that which is good, that he may have to give to him who hath need." Let no filthy speech come out of your mouth, but if any is good for the building up, as the need may be, that it may give grace unto the hearers. Now, man by his sinful nature is a thief, and he's a liar. And it's natural to be that way. May I say to you, when I was a boy, we always, during the year, a bunch of boys were a gang that I ran with, and they were mean. I'll tell you very frankly, they were mean. As I've often said, I was the only good boy in the crowd. But you know, we used to go and steal watermelons during the watermelon season. And I'm of the opinion the owner might have given us one, but they tasted better if we swiped them. And then we'd steal peaches and apples out of orchards. I tell you, wasn't anything safe. And we'd steal eggs and take them down during the winter time to the old Buzzard Creek, and we would roast them and then hunt rabbits. And just naturally a thief, by the way. Then I was converted, and I haven't held up a bank or a market or anything like that. But I was riding here several years ago down a certain highway on a country road, and 
fact, going to see a man. And he had a marvelous, wonderful watermelon patch. And you know my temptation. I actually stopped. I got out of the car. I thought, I think I'll go over and get me a watermelon. Then I thought, well, wait a minute. I'm going to see the man. He'll give me one. And there's no reason for me to do this. And I got back in the car and drove on. But you know, I almost went in his patch and took one without being asked. And I told him my experience. And he laughed and he said, you know, I might have shot you if you'd gone that watermelon patch. He said, I've had a lot in there stealing my watermelons and they're pretty valuable today. So it's in our hearts, friends. We're just naturally that way. Now, Paul says that we're not to steal anymore, even when it may look like it's all right. And he's not to get rich for his own selfish ends, but he's to help others, you see, with whatever he has that's surplus. Today, there are many fine Christian ministries that lag and wilt for lack of fun. Why? Because a lot of God's children are not given as they should give. That's quite evident. Then he mentions filthy speech. And it means that which is rotten or putrid. An uncontrolled tongue in the mouth of a believer is an index to a corrupt life. Believers who use the shady or questionable story, they reveal a heart of wickedness. Because you know what's in the well of the heart will eventually come up through the bucket of the mouth. And the speech of the believer should be on the high plane of instructing and communicating encouragement to other believers. You can have fun and enjoy life. Humor's all right, but gracious to deal with that which is dirty and filthy today. Now, he goes on here to deal with something that we want to deal with, and this is quite wonderful. He says, "...and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed until or for the day of redemption. Now, the day of redemption is that day that the Holy Spirit will present you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's a person, the Holy Spirit's a person here that can be grieved, therefore. When what is it that grieves him? Well, the offenses which grieve the Holy Spirit, they've already been listed. That's what we've been talking about. When you lie as a Christian... That grieves the Holy Spirit. You have dirty thoughts. That grieves the Holy Spirit. And when a person is grieved, what happened? Well, it's no fellowship. He can't work in your life. But notice what he says. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, though. You're sealed till the day of redemption. Now, you can grieve the Holy Spirit, but you can't grieve him away because you've been sealed unto the day of redemption. How wonderful this is. From the moment that you're regenerated, the Holy Spirit seals you, as we've already seen in this, and he will present you to the Lord Jesus Christ someday. And in the meantime, you can grieve him. Now, what is the difference today really between Christians? The real difference between Christians is those who live with a grieved Holy Spirit and those who live with an ungrieved Holy Spirit. That's the difference. Now he says, in conclusion in this chapter, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. As that word malice again, congealed anger. But become ye kind to one another, kind-hearted, forgiving one another, as also God in Christ forgave you. 
Now, these two last verses, they're in sharp contrast one to the other. For instance, in verse 31, there is an additional listing of that which grieves the Holy Spirit. Now, these are the sins of the emotional nature. Bitterness. That's an irritable state of mind which produces harsh and hard opinions of others. Someone came to me and told me what they thought of a certain Christian, and there was a third Christian present, and after this man left, he said to me, if I were you, McGee, I wouldn't put too much stress upon what this individual has said. He said he's very bitter. Well, great many people speak in bitterness, and when they do, it hurts. And that grieves the Holy Spirit. Now, wrath and anger are outbursts of passion. Bishop Mole makes this distinction between them. He says, wrath denotes rather the acute passion and the other, that is anger, the chronic passion. And then clamor. That means a bold assertion of supposed rights and grievances. There are those in the church. You meet them guilty of this. Grieves the Holy Spirit. They said, you know, they don't pay any attention to me anymore. The pastor doesn't shake hands with me. Well, my friend, what right have you to say that he's got to run around and shake your little paw to keep you happy? Of course, a lot of us pastors had the job of burping the babies, and that was part of it, was shaking a lot of hands. They'd be bitter if you didn't do it, and they would be clamorous if you didn't do it. Now, evil speaking here is blasphemy, yet it means all kinds of slander. And they are to be put away, that is, taken away. And it's an aorist imperative, if I may intrude a little grammar here. It means that there should be a decisive act if the Holy Spirit is not grieved. You are to put it away. You are to make a decision to put that away. Now, malice, as we've said, is congealed hatred here. But become, he says now, do you note that here? He says... You're to put these away from you, but become kind one to another. And this denotes the radical change that should take place in the believer so there'll be no vacuum in his life. Kind to one another. That means Christian courtesy. Kind-hearted is more intense than the word kind. It means to be full of deep and mellow affection. Some believers. You know some like that. Wonderful friend. When they see you, they put their arm around you. Well, I went to college with, graduated college with him, then in seminary. I helped meetings for him for years. He's retired. When we saw each other in Florida, we just flung arms around each other. That's kind-hearted. I love him in the Lord. Now he says, forgiving one another. That's a reflexus form of a phrase, and it means to give and take in relation to the faults of one another. Forgive instead of magnify the faults of others. That's what we're to do. Now, all of this is done on a twofold basis. First, this conduct will not grieve the Holy Spirit. And in the second place, the basis of forgiveness is not legal, but gracious. It's not a command under law. But it's on the basis of the grace of God 
exhibited in our forgiveness because Christ died for us. And we're to forgive because we've been forgiven, not in order to get forgiveness. And that's quite a contrast. The Lord Jesus said, you know, you're to forgive so you will be forgiven. Well, that's legal. And he was given that in the Sermon on the Mount. But here, it's on the basis of the fact of what he's done for us. This is quite wonderful. Now, that brings us to the fifth chapter. And the subject here is, the church will be a bride. Now, I'll admit that this is really mixing metaphors. Back in chapter 4, the church is a new man, and now the church will be a bride. But the emphasis is upon will be. The church is not a bride today. The church is a new man walking in the world. And though the church is espoused to Christ, but not yet wedded, the wedding hasn't taken place. And we'll see here that this mixing of metaphors serves a very definite purpose. The church will be a bride. And John, in Revelation 21, verse 2 He says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. Verse 9 there says, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven last plagues, talked with me, saying, Come hither, I'll show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now on this earth we're to walk as a future bride. We're engaged now. That's what Paul said when he said, I've espoused you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, when a girl is engaged and she's preparing for a wedding, she doesn't have time for her old boyfriends. She won't be going out with Tom tonight and Dick tomorrow night and then Harry the next night. She's engaged and she has no interest in them anymore. How can we who are engaged to Christ live as the world lives? We're going to be presented to him someday. We're going to live with him throughout eternity. He's going to be our Lord and our Master. Now, my friend, you can't live for the world like that. Now you have in this chapter 5 the engagement of the church, verses 1 through 17, the experience of the church, verses 18 through 24, and then the expectation of the church, 25 through 33. Now, verses 1 and 2, Therefore do ye become imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as also Christ loved you and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for the savor of a sweet smell. The church is not emphasized like it should. And unfortunately, this group of young people that have been moving outside of the organized local church today, that have seen a real spiritual movement, they are the ones that have emphasized love. And unfortunately, in many local churches, you don't see love exhibited. And then in others, there's a wonderful spirit. I was down in Florida in a church. In fact, I was in several. And it was wonderful to be with some of these folk down there. Just wonderful. What a spirit of love when they met together in fellowship. How they'd linger after the church to talk one with another. Actually, what we're dealing with here is that we're still talking about the walk of the believer. He's engaged now. He's to be an imitator of God, especially in forgiveness, but also in all aspects of the walk. And this is the exalted plane to which Gentiles 
have been lifted, who formerly walked on a very low plane. Now they're called beloved children. A plane is lifted to the high level of love and the love which Christ exhibited when he loved us enough to give himself an offering and a sacrifice for us. This is a clear-cut reference to the cross and makes the death of Christ more than the public execution of a criminal. He gave himself for an offering and a sacrifice to God for the savor of a sweet smell. And that identifies him with every sacrifice that was offered in the Old Testament that God commanded because it pointed to him. The cross was the brazen altar where the Lamb of God was offered as the burnt sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. How wonderful this is. Well, we're going to have to leave off at that point, and we'll pick up at verse 3 next time. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. To share today's message with a family member or friend, it's available on our app or at ttb.org. Again, that's ttb.org, or if you need to reach us by phone, you can call us at 1-800-65-BIBLE. Well, that's all for today. I'm Steve Schwetz. Be sure to meet me back here next time as we continue this great journey through the Bible. Through the Bible exists to take God's whole word to the whole world. And we invite you to stand with us with your faithful prayer and financial support. Where will God's word go today?